Hey there, conductors. If you've ever felt that you're not quite sure what to do next when you're studying a score, maybe you don't even know where to start with a difficult piece. Maybe you study one piece too much and then you realize at the first rehearsal that you don't know another one well enough. Or maybe you're a new conductor and you don't know what score study is. I'm excited to share that I'm finally publishing and sharing my score study checklist. I've been refining this for 12 years now, and I'm so excited to share it. It is going to walk you through my structure, my process to make sure that I learn every score that I need to learn well enough and so that nothing falls through the cracks. So it covers everything that you need to know. There's a link in the show notes. Go ahead and click it, sign up, and you'll get that score study checklist sent right to your email. You'll also get access to an eight-minute video of me explaining what each section is and how I use it to organize all the music that I need to learn. It's only eight minutes, so it's not going to take you a whole hour to learn how to study better, how to put up a process for your score study and how to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks. So again, click the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you soon. Now, please enjoy this episode of Podium Time. Welcome to Podium Time, the podcast for conductors and students. Collaboration has worked for us. New music has worked for us. That's sort of, you know, we always talk about trying to make the art form relevant. Relevant is is not an absolute thing. Relevant is different for every community, for every organization, every group of audience. And I think the most successful artistic institutions, especially the most successful musical institutions, have really uh, found a way to get their community to embrace them by embracing what's distinctive about their communities. And welcome to Podium Time. I'm your host, Jeremy D. Cuevas, and Luke and I are so excited to share this interview with Aram Demergen, music director of the Knoxville Symphony. You'll learn today how Aram transitioned from an assistant conductor to a music directorship, how to determine what relevant means to your community and become a bigger part of it, and why conductors are like politicians in our responsibilities, relationships, and the influence we wield. A quick update to this interview as well. In April, Aram was named recipient of the 2020 Sir George Schulte Conducting Award, so a huge, huge congrats to him. As always, I'd like to extend a huge thank you to our supporters on Patreon, who help keep the lights on here at Podium Time by supporting us with just a few bucks a month. You can also support the podcast by following and sharing each episode on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, The Podium Time Inner Circle, if you'd like to interact with other listeners, suggest new interview guests, and be the first to take part in new updates to the podcast. If you're in the market for a new baton or some baton conducting accessories, head over to pagubatons.com and use our code PODIUMTIME, with no spaces, for 20% off your first order. Links for all of these are in our show notes below. Well, let's get started. Is it, I'm sorry. Sure. Aram Demerd. Emergent, like emergency. Yep. <laughs> <Aaron Yep. Demergen. laughs> Got it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. You know, thanks so much for uh, for making some time on your in your Monday night to chat with us. Great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Would you give us just a quick overview of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I am the music director of the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra. That's a job that I've been in in a little for a little more than three years. Prior to that, I was the associate conductor of the Kansas City Symphony for four years. And um, 
prior to that, I lived uh, in or around the city of Boston for my whole life up until the time I was 26. Grew up in a town called Lexington and then did uh, all of my schooling in various places around Boston and, uh, you know, a handful of gap years and starving artist years in there, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. Uh, until I moved out to Kansas City and started my, uh, I guess you could say, continued my musical journey. Yeah. And so let's talk, maybe let's start with, you know, because you you had the scrolling and then you had the kind of assistant position and then you had the music director position. Can we just talk briefly about all the, all the different responsibilities you have in these, in these three times? Sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think actually the two most closely, closely interrelated steps of that kind of tripartite journey, the, the way you described it. I mean, there, there were a lot more smaller steps along yeah, the way, yeah. of course. But um, the time as uh, an assistant and the time as a music director were very closely related, actually okay. more closely related than I probably realized, you know, as the assistantship was going on. Uh, so I spent four years as the assistant or the associate of the Kansas City Symphony, mm-hmm. which was four of the greatest years of my life, really. And part of that was because of the way the assistant job there is structured. I mean, okay. you know, pe- you know, people ask, you know, what, like, what's an assistant conductor? What's an associate conductor? What's a resident conductor? Are they different? <laughs> you know, is one better than the other? I don't really have a good answer for it. Uh, I think that every orchestra, if they even have an assistant or a staff conductor position, has a different conception of what that position means and what the responsibilities are, everything ranging from being somebody who just sits in the hall as a cover conductor, listening for the balances um, and kind of being on call for, mm-hmm. you know, somebody to, somebody trips and falls or gets <laughs> sick or anything like that, all the way to being on the podium all the time. And in the case of my position in Kansas City, uh, the assistant or associate conductor uh, had a very distinct and very prominent profile uh, all their own. I mean, you know, the, the music director and I had a wonderful uh, boss as a music director and Michael Stern. He mm-hmm. was, the, you know, he was the face of the orchestra, certainly, and the face of the organization uh, on stage doing the subscription series and some of the other more high profile, uh, you know, community or gala type things. But Pretty much for everything else, all of the other series, the family concerts, the education concerts, the pops concerts, um, you know, I, I got to help develop my own series of light classical concerts called oh, Classics cool. Uncorked. Um, you know, pretty much anything else, uh, I was the primary conductor. And so I got to be on the podium at least 50 or 60 times every season. And I mean, as you guys know, that time on the podium is invaluable. And it not only allowed me to get practice on my musical craft with a group of orchestra musicians who really uh, were very, very warm and welcoming and responsive to, you know, like a 26 year old kid who was, you know, doing his first professional work. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also helped me to sort of develop my 
on stage profile and presence in relationship to the audience, in addition to relationship with the orchestra. And, you know, I, I, I didn't know it necessarily at the time, but I was developing all of these, um, uh, I don't know if you want to say habits, but, you know, an idea of, you know, what is it like to develop a concert series? What yeah. makes a well-balanced program? What makes uh, a program that you can pull off on one rehearsal or two rehearsals versus, you know, the uh, all, all of those artistic cost benefit analyses that you're making, you know, like there's, there's your artistic ideal, but then there's what's practical. And then there's mm -hmm. what's, you know, what's on budget and uh, you know, all of those things. But then even beyond that, I was pretty much invited into every behind the scenes aspect of the organization, yeah, which yeah. a lot of assistant conductors don't get the opportunity to do, but in my case, it was, you know, and I had my, my other boss, the executive director there, Frank Byrne, uh, who just recently retired, also wonderful. Um, it was the expectation that I would learn and be involved in the inner workings of an orchestra. I was expected mm -hmm. to be present at every board meeting, present and attentive. Um, I was very closely involved in marketing activities uh, from, you know, from the jump when I got there, um, eventually I got, uh, you know, got to do some development work. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget. Actually, it was during the last couple of months that I was on the job in Kansas city. Uh, after I already knew that I would be going on to be music director of Knoxville symphony, where I was at a development event. And, you know, I had been to, you know, dozens and dozens of these at this point, but I was falling into the habit of, you know, talking to the donor or the board member or whoever that I knew pretty well already. And Frank pulled me aside and he said, he pointed to, he pointed to the room and there were about 50 to 75 people in the room. And this was at a pre-concert or pre, a pre-dress rehearsal event. And he said, so there's 20 minutes left in the event. It's your job to meet every person in this room between now and the end of the event. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, yeah, de you know, development experience, artistic planning experience, all of that. I didn't really know it at the time, but that was a music director in training job. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. pitched to me that way. And I don't know if it, I, you know, you'd have to ask the, the powers that be there if that's the way they conceived it. But it was, you know, finishing school for me <laughs> in terms of preparing to go on and be a music director. Um, you know, at, at the Knoxville Symphony, which is, uh, you know, small to medium size, we kind of exist in the middle ground. And now as music director, I'm doing all of those things and more with a heightened level of responsibility. And there are certainly many new responsibilities that come along with being a music director as well, uh, particularly in that, you know, you're, you know, you're one of the handful of people where the buck stops. You're one of the people that has final say on a lot of important decisions. You have many, many more responsibilities relating, uh, you know, to auditions and personnel and all of that. And then, and then of course, you know, you're still all you know, all of these skills are always in development. You're still yeah. constantly learning on the job. And yeah, you know, I mean, they say it takes 30 years to make a conductor, you know, the, the, the learning really never stops. And in a sense, there's that third step in the journey also, I guess it was the first step, you know, when I was a student and uh, we can talk more about, you know, being a student and, you know, that level of growth. But there was actually, there was one part of my 
of my uh, educational experience that I've been finding is playing more of a role now that I'm a music director than it necessarily yeah. was when I was an assistant conductor. So I wasn't always on the path to being a professional musician. It wasn't even oh, okay. anything I it wasn't even anything I seriously entertained uh, yeah. when I was growing up and when I was in school. Obviously, music was very very important to me. And my friends who I went to high school with would tell you that I was the last to realize that I was going to become a professional musician. Um, but, uh, you know, if I uh, hadn't been a conductor, probably I wouldn't be doing music professionally. Conducting okay. was the thing, the one, not just the one musical thing, but the one thing in general where I never really, you know, I, I still haven't found the bottom, you know, it's like <laughs> I keep on, I keep on going, I keep on uh, digging a hole is not a good metaphor for this, is it? <laughs> but, um, and the the uh, the setting in which I realized that was I did um, I did my undergraduate studies initially in government uh, at Harvard okay. University and got to conduct a wonderful chamber orchestra on campus for two years. A chamber orchestra that's been around for about seventy five years now, uh, and it had it's an entirely undergraduate membership, including undergraduate administration and undergraduate music director, uh, called the Bach Society Orchestra. And I got to conduct that orchestra for two years and be a music director before I even really knew that much about conducting, yeah. which was in a way the best possible way to get into it. I mean, mm -hmm. Max Rudolph, you know, the great conducting teacher would say, you know, the best way to learn how to conduct is to conduct. And yeah. I had this incredible laboratory when I was 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old to just, well, I mean, you know, figure things out. And I look back on it now and I think more, well, figure things out, really just make a lot of mistakes and feel really good about making them, you know? Um, uh, but I, you know, when I started off as a music director, there were, as a professional music director, there were elements where I was like, there are certain elements of this that are familiar again yeah, yeah. In, in, you know, in just in terms of being the, being one of the places where it's sort of the final flow of information. So that's that. That was a long answer. Sorry about that. You, you'll, my, <laughs> my, 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 my friends and the musicians in my orchestra and the audience will tell you that once you wind me up, it's kind of hard to, you know, stop <laughs> the flow of words. That's perfect. In the in the Bach, in the little Bach chamber orchestra, were you you were programming and everything? Were you like doing all music director things? Oh yeah, it was a it was a it you know it still exists of course. It's a wonderful yeah. little orchestra. Um, and Bach Society is just the name. It does everything oh, yeah, from yeah. Bach, all the, you know, anything that a chamber orchestra can pull mm -hmm. off. And yeah, four or five concerts a year. There was programming. There was there was marketing. You know, I mean, it was it was you know it was quaint. But yeah, yeah there 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 was there was marketing. There was budget making. Um, you know, there there was audience development. You know, we mm -hmm. sold tickets that cost money and yeah. all of that. <laughs> how did how did you find yourself leading that? It was something that I knew about when I matriculated there. I mean, you know, Harvard's Harvard. And so there are a lot of good reasons to want to go there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I always joke, of course, I, you know, Harvard was my top choice to go to uh, for the reason what for, of most people is because I wanted to conduct an orchestra on campus oh. there. No, yeah. I mean, it, it was <laughs> it was it was a it, it was um, an institution that I was certainly aware of knowing that I didn't want to give up 
on music, even though I didn't think it was what I was going to go into professionally, the chance to actually be on a campus where I could feed my conducting habit uh, mm -hmm. while still studying something else was an incredible gift. And uh, it was something that I applied for and auditioned for. Awesome. Where did the, where did the interest in conducting come from? It, it, it kind of goes back to an experience that I had when I was 14 years old. It was the first time that I was playing in a full-size symphony orchestra. Uh, I'm a cellist, and I was playing in a youth orchestra, uh, the Youth Symphony of New England Conservatory Preparatory School. And it was actually on the heels of a kind of a, you know, an emo a difficult emotional time. I mean, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary for, you know, adolescence. For a 14 year old. Uh, yeah, not the exact age, <laughs> but you know, I just come, I just come off of a year where I'd almost quit playing the cello, you know, because I was really, you know, I was not having fun being a music nerd or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I had tried playing baseball for a little while and that kind of ended with a really nasty injury where I took a line drive to the face and was laid up for a while and all of oh, that. Yeah. And so this was like a beginning of a new period in, <laughs> in my, in, in my life. And I was finding that, you know, getting back to music after recovering from that injury was really uh, refreshing. And I was experiencing music in a way that I either never had before or had never been conscious of before. And I remember uh, this was this this was the first orchestra rehearsal, actually, of this youth orchestra. And we were playing Dvorak New World Symphony. <laughs> and um, I it was, you know, during one of those passages where the cellos have 24 bars of rest or something like that. And I was sitting there counting rests and became just hyper aware of everything that was going on around me in terms of mm -hmm. the way an orchestra functions, you know, the the, you know, I mean, I was sitting in the middle to the back of the cello section at that point. And so I was right next to the oboes and right in front of the trombones. And, you know, just kind of over the course of that uh, semester became really, really fascinated at the sort of intricate machine that an orchestra mm -hmm. is. All of these different people, all of whom have different responsibilities, different sounds. They're all exerting an incredible amount of energy, an incredible amount of focus, each in a different and distinctive way. And yet out of all of it, there's harmony. And mm -hmm. the more I played in orchestra, first of all, the more I fell in love with the repertoire, but the more I also became more interested in what everybody else was doing than what was necessarily just in my cello part. Mm -hmm. And I started to become, you know, so interested in just the, the process of fitting it all together and started, you know, thinking about, okay, you know, why is the conductor asking that? Why is the conductor making that gesture? Why is, you know, and, and then I would start to hear things and think, you know, why isn't the conductor addressing that? <laughs> and if I were on the podium, I think that I yeah, would tell good. the, I think <laughs> that I would tell the second violin section to do, and this all got worse when I got to become principal of, of the cello section, <laughs> because I was one, I was, I was, I was three feet away from the yeah. place that I really wanted to be. No, but I, I really, I, all of those relationships and all of those lines of communication was what was most fascinating to me 
uh, about an orchestra, and I wanted to be involved and as close to as many of those lines as communi- of communication as possible. And so I took my first conducting lessons when I was 16 years old. Uh, my my father, both of my parents are very good amateur musicians. Um, my father played in a bunch of community orchestras around the Boston area. And, uh, you know, he was not a proponent of my, he was not a proponent initially, at least of my becoming a professional musician, but he was a proponent of my doing it as seriously as possible up until the point that I wanted to become a professional. (laughs) Um, and, uh, you know, I told him that I was interested in learning more about conducting and he spoke to one of the conductors of one of the orchestras that he had played in, whose name, uh, is Jeffrey Rink. And my first conducting lessons were in, um, you know, in, in his kitchen in Newton, Massachusetts. <laughs> and, you know, it was mostly, you know, for, for the next two years, my experience with conducting was mostly, you know, standing in front of a stereo, waving my arms around like we all started. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think I watched the, the Art of Conducting DVD about 75 times. But it was really in high school that I got my first experience standing in front of an orchestra I had an I went to an incredible high school for music um, Lexington High School and uh, there was an incredible music faculty there uh, led by three people uh, the choral director with who I sang under Brian O'Connell uh, the band director Jeffrey Leonard and the orchestra director Janet Haas who very sadly just died uh, a year ago but uh, they were really just, you know, so great about putting their students who were interested in it, putting them in mm-hmm. leadership positions and yeah. nurturing that opportunity. Uh, yeah, nurturing that opportunity to lead and to be featured. And in my senior year, I just, you know, I asked uh, Mrs. Haas, my orchestra director, you know, could I conduct a piece with the orchestra this year? And she didn't even really think about it. She, you know, I mean, we had, we had a relationship. She knew me and she said, yeah, think about what you want to conduct and we'll talk about it. And so yeah. my first, my first orchestra performance, it was a movement of Dvorak New World Symphony. Actually, <laughs> that piece holds a lot of significance for me. Uh, it was on my 18th birthday just before I graduated mm. high school. Oh, that's awesome. And then did you, did you go right into studying conducting or did you study cello? I went on to, um, I did my undergrad. I was very much that, you know, the, the story that I told about what first got me into conducting, um, I enjoy large groups of people. I enjoy the dynamics of large groups of people. I enjoy being in a position to influence hearts and minds, uh, for, for lack of a better expression. And, Um, I wanted to do something that involved having relationships and connections with a lot of people and could hopefully make some folks lives better. And, uh, I'd say that I was, you know, there's a, I get, there's, there's certainly a political awakening happening among the current generation of youth, whatever comes after millennials happening right now. I would say that I was a part of a generation or a wave of youth where the defining event of their sort of political lives, for lack of a better word, it's not really political, but the defining event of their awareness of the country that they were in 
was 9-11 and everything that, everything that came after. So, you know, I sort of had this political awakening during the 2004 election and I started watching the West Wing and all of that and became very inspired and very idealistic and, you know, wanted to save the world <laughs> by, you know, working in politics and running for public office and all of that. So I went on to study government that's right, yeah. and that's what I did for the first three years while still yeah. nursing the conducting habit um, by conducting, you know, a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta on campus or something mm-hmm. like that. And I, I sang in a wonderful choir on campus, <laughs> the university <laughs> choir, which was at a church where I was in a small uh, morning choir that sang five mornings a week. And that was really where my musical education happened more than anything else, because you were showing up for a 20 minute rehearsal, sight reading everything, and then going up and performing it. It was awesome. And it was, I mean, you would think, you know, a bunch of college (laughs) undergrads getting up at 8.15 in the morning to go to church, you'd think that might be cruel and unusual, but it was really quite wonderful. And I remember it was in my, it was in my junior year where I was coming back from a government discussion section, uh, feeling thoroughly uninspired by by that point it only it only took two and a half years uh feeling thoroughly uninspired (laughs) at at that point um and simultaneously (laughs) being very very excited about the rehearsal that i had that night that i was planning out my rehearsal plan and that was kind of my uh eureka moment where you know not only was conducting the thing that i found to be the most exciting thing that i was doing I also, and in a, I guess you'd call in a healthy way, it not, not necessarily a pretentious or cocky way, but it was something that I felt like I was good at. It was something that I, that I felt like, you know, yeah. it, it was something that I, I couldn't not do it. You know, I, I, my, my college advisor, yeah. my college advisor, uh, you know, when I was trying to initially decide if I should even pursue a music minor at all, was talking to me about how, you know, you don't choose music, music chooses you. And at the ripe age of 18, I had no idea what he meant until I understood what he meant three years later. And that was, that was when I had that mm-hmm. interesting conversation with my parents. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, it, it only took like a week or two for them to get on board. <laughs> and then they became my biggest champions, which I was very, very lucky, very, very, very fortunate to have that. Um, and that's when I just yeah, sort of yeah. shifted focus and I wound up adding a music major. I did a double major in music and government and, uh, you know, set the plan in place for getting into graduate school and started applying to conducting programs, you know, summer programs, et cetera. Mm-hmm. All, you know, decided to take a year off and move back into my parents, you know, basement uh, after graduating to focus only on music for the first time in my life. And, uh, and you know, and eventually I wound up at the yeah. last place that I would have expected to be at graduate school, New England Conservatory, where I played in high school orchestra. Well, and being a conductor, you get to do so much of that, of that big groups of people you know, maybe, maybe similar to government work as well. There is a, actually, I mean, there's, yeah, you're, you are, you are a politician mm-hmm. when you're a conductor in a lot of ways um, in the sense that you have a lot of different constituencies that you, that, that look to you mm-hmm. um, that you're responsible for in a way. And, uh, you know, these constituencies 
uh, all have slightly different interests and slightly different priorities. Um, and it's your responsibility uh, to help all of them and to also keep all of them in the tent. Yeah. And it's a lot of, and there's a lot of public speaking and, you know, involved in it. And, you know, much like certain executive political offices with conducting, uh, especially when you're on the podium with the orchestra, you know, there are very few enumerated powers. You're, you're not, you're not making the sound and <laughs> yet you're, you're, you're the de facto leader. And while you don't have that many enumerated powers, you have a lot of powers to influence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, and then depending on how you, you know, deploy that influence with the words that you choose yeah. and with the decisions that you make and with the relationships that you develop and the trust that you build or don't build can have a, uh, a lot of broad consequences for the entire organization. Yeah, um, and plus you're plus you're a public figure. You're somebody that uh, that everyone's paying attention to. So you know, presenting yourself and just how you interact with people is important. Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I always knew, um, you know, that when you become a music director, you do become a public figure. I didn't realize the extent to which the the extent to which you are, especially in a city like Knoxville, where I am right now, which is a you know relatively small city, the population here is under two hundred thousand people. Oh, okay. uh, I don't like describing it. I don't. I don't like describing it as a small city because I feel like small has a pejorative connotation. So we'll just say not a big city. But you know, it. it you are. You know go to a restaurant or, you know, you're, I, I mean, right now we're all in, we're all in social distancing, you know, quarantine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my, my wife and I go for a walk down our street in Knoxville. And in the last two days, I had people who were out on their porches who I never met, who I never met before call out maestro. <laughs> and we had a nice little conversation and it turned out they were audience members of the symphony, awesome, you know, yeah. I mean, but like, you know, just in terms of that level of, you know, in terms of that level of visibility, you know, I mean, I'm also, I'm in a, I'm in a, a program right now called Leadership Knoxville, mm -hmm. which is this program that all community leaders, CEO types, people in charge of nonprofits do here. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm in this program with a bunch of, you know, the, you know, a bun bunch of CEOs and a bunch of political figures and really influential people. And here I am, the music director of the orchestra. And it's like I'm playing in the same sandbox mm -hmm. uh, with, with these folks. And um, it's actually kind of wonderful to be in a town where just by virtue of the intimate nature of the city, uh, you know, you, you, the, the arts has such close proximity with everything else because everything is in close proximity because there's an investment in building of community. Yeah. <laughs> is this, is the leadership Knoxville, is that like a, like a training program? It's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a series of workshops that goes for a year and it's designed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's not so much a training program as it is sort of a leadership skills development program, but more to the, more to the point, it's a goal of building a community of leaders to take okay. leaders from a bunch of different professional avenues who may not have the opportunity to interact in their day-to-day -day occupational lives and to give them a forum through which to get to know each other because yeah. you, 
you never know when you, you know, as conductors, as, as any, as people in any leadership position, we're all, we all need friends and we all are going to be, you know, in a place at some point or another where we need some help or we need a question answered. And, you know, the, the bigger your, your Rolodex, I'm, I'm dating myself. <laughs> the bigger your Rolodex is, the more trusted colleagues that you can have, and especially colleagues who have been in your shoes, whether it's the mm-hmm. specific situation, another director of an orchestra or another director of a nonprofit, or have just been in your situation where they you know, have difficult decisions that they need to make that uh, leave an impact on the lives of a lot of people. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's always helpful to have those people that you, that, that you trust who can be a sounding board for you and who can give you some honest perspective. Mm-hmm. And you've been, is this, is this your, the end of your third year that's coming up? Is that where you are? Yes. End of my third, end of, end of my third full season as music director. There was a, there was a, there was a music director designate season there. So my association with the city has been four years now. And have you seen, you know, how is, this is always a loaded question, but how have, how have things changed now that you've taken over for a couple of years? I think you'd have to ask just about everybody. I think you'd have to ask all of my constituents the, the, that, yeah, that question. Yeah, they'll, yeah. they'll give you the honest answer. You know, I'm going to give the answer that serves that serves me the best. No, I'm kidding. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I'll say from from where I sit or stand, especially in the last year, there have been a lot of really um, inspiring and validating things that I've observed Uh, on an artistic level. One of the things that I wanted for the entire organization was to uh, just make new music, make the music of our time uh, more of a part of the, of the mission of the artistic mission, at least of of the orchestra than it was when I arrived. And certainly there was, you know, apprehension, you know, from, from, from certain corners about this. And we didn't uh, dive into the deep end in terms of the program of new music. It was very gradual, you know, and, well, I don't want to say gradual, but it was, you know, it was, you know, start starting, starting safely and, you know, uh, ratchet, ratcheting up the, you know, r- ratcheting up the percentages, <laughs> the percentages every year and uh, choosing the music uh, with a great deal of care, trying to tie it to other things on the program that might be more familiar and trying to bring the same composers back um, rather than trying to, you know, program as many new composers as possible, trying to kind of trying to take composers that we believe in and make them a part of the repertoire and make them a part of the musical vocabulary of this particular audience. And Mm This season, especially, there have been uh, there have been a couple of instances where the piece by the new composer was the one that people were talking. The what might not, not might not have been what they showed up for, but it was the one yeah. that people were talking about and talking about mm-hmm. in a positive way on their way okay. out the door. <laughs> and I can only speak anecdotally, but at the very least, now there is the expectation on the part of the audience that a, a part of the experience of going to a Knoxville Symphony concert 
is that they're going to get something new. And Mm -hmm. of course, everybody is of a different mind of whether that's what they're necessarily looking for, may not be their favorite part of the program, but it is now a part of the profile. And the that sense of curiosity, I'd like to think, is a part of why people seek us out. That 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 that's one thing that's been a really uh, that's been a really wonderful change uh, or a really mm-hmm. wonderful point of growth, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another one has been kind of the coming together of the artistic profile of the orchestra and of the education and community relations profile of the orchestra. The orchestra has okay. an in, has an incredible incredible uh, list of uh, education and community relations activities. Uh, in, in which it's engaged, um, you know, from, we have a music and wellness program that does a great deal of work in hospitals. Uh, mm. we have, a, a library story time program that, you know, goes into 19 different counties and plays these Peter and the Wolf style string quartet things. Um, and, you know, very robust in concert hall education program and many, many community partnerships. Yeah. And, you know, one of the conversations we had really early on was how do we take the uh, sense of a community pride that was already present in Knoxville and capitalize on it in terms of what we're doing on our concert stages and on our subscription stages? Well, one of the, I think, you know, most straightforward ways to do that, and we have, uh, is to build our community partners into not just our, you know, our auxiliary programming, our community partnership program, whatever, but build it into our subscription programming mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. Um, and give ourselves a venue through which to talk about everything that we're doing that our subscription audience doesn't necessarily see or hear, uh, but also an opportunity for the audience members or the community of whatever these community partners that doesn't necessarily get to see our subscription programs, um, you know, get them into the concert hall and get them talking about the symphony. So whether it's, you know, uh, a student contemporary dance ensemble that we worked with last season or uh, a contemporary music ensemble called Ninkmorph uh, that we did a percussion, a double percussion concerto with this season or, a professional West African drum uh, ensemble that we're doing a concerto with next season or the theater company or the ballet company, you know, just taking, you know, just taking all of the wonderful artistic things that our city has to offer, putting it on our stage and making our stage and our concert hall, a gathering point for the broader artistic community and hopefully slowly, but surely, you know, broadening people's idea of, what they can find when they go into an orchestra concert. Just this season, I uh, we did Avner Dorman's uh, concerto for two percussionists, Spices, Perfumes, Toxins, and uh, programmed that along with Beethoven's Seventh Symphony on a program called Beethoven and the Art of Rhythm. And uh, it was an incredible reception uh, yeah. for, for Avner's piece. I would say the first... <laughs> The first contemporary piece where I really felt like we turned the corner um, in terms of uh, people kind of uh, getting really excited by a new piece that they were hearing and not just a new piece, but a relatively long piece that they were hearing was in January of 2018, where um, my 
my, my buddies in Project Trio. I don't know if you're aware of Project Trio. No. Uh, they're they're fabulous. Um, they're, uh, they're three guys three guys who met in school. Uh, you, you know, not three instruments that you wouldn't necessarily expect to go together. Uh, Greg Patillo was a flute player, beatboxing flute player, who's a, kind of a YouTube sensation. Uh, Eric Stevenson, the cellist, and Peter Seymour, a uh, double bassist. And they formed this trio where they basically take the traditional classical sound and they fuse it with a bunch of different other musical sounds um, and idioms. And, they, you know, they kind of create a sound that's all their own. And they're this super, you know, mm. you know visually and orally dynamic performing group. And they have a lot of compositions of their own. That's just the trio, but they've started commissioning concertos for themselves. And um, the first concerto was a piece called scatter by another friend of mine, Adam Schoenberg, who Mm. already uh, had a good, um, you know, already was perceived uh, really positively by the Knoxville audience. I remember uh, one piece that another conductor had conducted prior to my becoming music director was Adam's finding Rothko which mm-hmm. I've, I've seen be very successful with audiences in a bunch of different cities. I mean, with good reason, mm-hmm. Adam's a great composer and that's a great mm-hmm. piece. Uh, so I, you know, I, I figured, okay, we've got these really great performers. We've got a composer that already has some cachet with our audience. So, you know, let's, let's capitalize on this. Let's build on this. Yeah. And, um, Man, that was like a rock concert uh, when, when Project Trio came in and played Scatter. It was on a program that we uh, we called it Bohemian Rhapsody. And mm-hmm. we opened with Dvorak's Eighth Symphony, put the symphony on the first half, and then followed it up on the second half, um, you know, with a couple of more, you know, Czech dances, um, transitioning into Project Trio uh, with some of their arrangements of classical stuff, the concerto. And then uh, Nick Hirsch's orchestral arrangement of Bohemian Rhapsody, and it was mm-hmm. it was pretty awesome. One of the orchestras I work for, the um, our our new marketing person has been has been pushing a Bohemian Rhapsody concert as like an example of our upcoming. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna find this and um, send the, send this to her because this is this this I wish I could have been there. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's really wonderful to feel like there's a sense of occasion in the concert hall. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know that there's a I have no better way to describe it, but you know that there's a buzz in the room. And if you're if yeah. you're a performer, you can feel when that buzz is in the room, and you can feel when that buzz isn't necessarily in the room. Uh, I mean, we just I just had this <clears throat> really wonderful experience where it was the uh, it was the first time that the orchestra here had played a Mahler symphony in a while. Okay. You know, I mean, Mahler, I, I think, I think people who uh, are performing musicians by and large love Mahler. There was a, there there was a little bit of apprehension of El Mahler. He's this Mahler character. And uh, you know, but one of the great things about the audience in Knoxville, and I think one of the great things about most audiences in most places is they're very, very eager to learn. They're very eager to be invited in to the experience. Um, And they're eager for that, even if they don't know that, which is why I, you know, I, it's, it's essential, I think for performers to 
be very, very deliberate and direct about welcoming the audience into the experience, mm -hmm. guiding them into the unknown, being sort of a safe harbor for what can be a very, you know, a, a, a very intimidating experience, especially if you're, you know, dealing in a vocabulary that you're not necessarily fluent in or even necessarily conversant in, being in a setting where the sort of historical norm is, you know, you know something, you have to be a connoisseur somehow uh, to experience this and to enjoy it. You know, also being in a situation where, you know, unlike a museum or a library, where if you encounter the first five pages of, of or, you know, of a piece of artwork that you don't like, or I'm mixing all of my metaphors here, but you know, <laughs> if, if, if five minutes into a 55 minute symphony, you, it's just not for you, you're, you're, you're stuck. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a really scary place to be sometimes. And we, we talk to the audience a lot. You know, we, we give them the guided tour of the piece before we play. And we, we did a whole 10 minute long presentation on Mahler One uh, before we performed it and told the story of it complete with musical uh, demonstrations. It was nothing novel, to be honest. It, there, there weren't any bells and whistles to it. But by the end of it, you could feel the buzz in the room. Like, you know, you, you, you could feel the sense of expectation and it was not only great for the audience, but it infused the orchestra with this extra level of electric vitality that just fed the performance. Well, and then, you know, they get used to seeing that they're, you know, the orchestra and the audience is a little bit more welcoming for the next Mahler symphony that comes. And if you have, you continue to have groups like, like Project Trio and you continue to have, you know, the art and the theater and the ballet join, then yeah, definitely the symphony becomes that that place where people go for, for everything. Yeah. Well, and Project Hopefully. Trio is actually Project Trio is coming back next season. Um awesome. to play uh, uh their new concerto by Chris Rogerson, which we are co commissioning. And, oh cool. Yeah. Oh, cool. And um and yeah, I mean it's just uh you know and 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 the thing is, you know, what collaboration has worked for us. New music yeah. has worked for us. That's sort of, you know, we always talk about trying to make the art form relevant. Relevant is, you know, is not an absolute thing. I don't think, mm -hmm. Re you know, relevant is different for every community, for every organization, every group of audience. Relevant, I think, is looking at what's around you and figuring out how, how, how you can speak with it, how you can have a conversation with it in yeah. a way that serves your art form and in a way that serves your organization and in a way that serves your community. And I think the most successful artistic institutions, especially the most successful musical institutions, have really uh, found a way to get their community to embrace them by embracing what's distinctive about their communities. Yeah, absolutely. So I saw in your bio, what is Knoxville Unstaged? KSO Unstaged. KSO Unstaged. KSO Unstaged, yes. KSO Unstaged um, <laughs> is sort of, uh, it's sort of the spiritual descendant of a series of concerts that I helped get off the ground uh, when I was in Kansas City. 
In Kansas okay. City, we had a, 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 well, they still have um, a series called Classics Uncorked, which is uh, a, a set of concerts, you know, really designed to do what I just described. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, uh, a wide range of experiences. You know, talk about the music before you play it. I, it was it, it was conceived initially as uh, sort of a newcomer's orchestral concert experience. You know, you, you know, something that's not a pops concert, something that distinctly feels like a classical mm-hmm. concert, but in a, you know, with the, with the, with the top collar unbuttoned, I guess, you know, <laughs> weeknights after work, the orchestra's not in tuxes, you know, it's, it's, it's relaxed, 7 p.m. start time, you know, the programming uh, was thematic, people would, you know, you got a glass of wine or whatever the drink of choice was after the concert the orchestra would come out and socialize etc um Mm -hmm. and it was great uh and it was in the concert hall and when i got to knoxville in uh, in the lead up to my first year as music director the orchestra received a grant from the league of american orchestras called the futures fund grant and the idea behind the futures fund grant was to sort of you know to I guess you could almost call it research and development money uh, to, yeah. sort of, <laughs> to sort of, you know, to, 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 to see, you know, what new things you could do to either attract new, uh, to just to experiment essentially, to, yeah, to, yeah. to be, to have a, to have a safe way to go further outside of the box than you necessarily would have otherwise. And so we applied it in two different ways. We applied it toward a clinical research study in relation to our music and wellness program. Um, okay. We have five musicians who go into the neonatal intensive care unit with the supervision of a music therapist and okay. um, track the effect that muted violin playing has on uh, a premature infant heart rate and oxygen retention. Okay. And so there's gonna be hopefully some published, uh, published data very soon on that front. And then the other thing that we applied it toward was this uh, series called KSO Unstaged, where the idea was to bring the audience and the orchestra closer together. Um, the, the way we describe it is we don't call them concerts. We call them musical experiences or mu- <laughs> music centric experiences is what we okay. call them. You know, mul- yeah. multi-sensory music centric experiences in venues where you wouldn't necessarily expect to find an orchestra and partnering with other creative minded organizations in the community who act as co-curators of the event. And so um, we did four of them and uh, we did one, you know, we, we did one called craft, which was a collaboration with a bunch of different craft breweries. Um, We did another called flight which we did in an airplane hangar with a oh, um, yeah, with a with a company uh, that recently relocated to Knoxville called Cirrus Aircraft. They make private aircraft, um, very you know very top of the line in terms of mm-hmm. uh, the flight industry. Uh, we did another called uh, Flow, 
which was a collab. We, it was a live yoga class with a live orchestra. Awesome. And uh, <laughs> we did another one called Vision, which was in the art in the art museum. And you know, we broke out into chamber groups and chamber group in each gallery, playing simultaneously and live artists and a bunch of different other experiences like that. It was it was interesting. Uh, we learned a lot actually about our yeah. audience, and we learned a lot about ourselves from doing that concert series. Uh, we got some new audience members, but most of the folks that showed up to it were people who were already kind of a part of the symphony family, but were really, really curious and thirsty for something new and different. Okay. And for ourselves as an organization, um, you know, there was this one very cool project that we did, which we called the creative train. It was part of our craft brew event where, um, and this was actually an idea that uh, the the president of Knox Brew Tours came up with. So I can't take credit for this idea. Yeah. Um, we started off, you know, he was he was talking about trying to find a way to mimic the process of brewing a beer uh, to mimic it in art and talking about how brewing a beer, you know, is a series of decisions and each decision uh, has a sort of a domino effect, ripple effect on all of the decisions that come after. And, you know, whether it's the temperature of the water or the amount of hops that you use or, you know, et cetera, I'm not an expert on this. Um, <laughs> and so what we decided to do was we commissioned a poet, a local poet to write a poem. And we passed that poem off to a photographer to take a photo that was inspired by the poem. And then we took that photo and we passed it off to a composer to write a piece inspired by the photo. And then we had the composer make a MIDI mock-up of the piece and we gave that to a brewer who brewed a beer <laughs> based on the piece of music. And yeah. we premiered them all at the same time at this event. That was another, yeah. that, that was another standout, incredible That's, moment yeah, because yeah, everybody yeah. in the room knew that something special was happening. And beyond that, you know, the, 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 the poet and the composer, the poet, especially a phenomenally talented woman named Rhea Carmen, Rhea Sunshine is her, uh, she's a spoken word artist. That's her poetry performing name. She's somebody who we've worked with a bunch of times since then. And she is definitely, uh, you know, she's, she's definitely what we would, you know, I mean, it's not official, but she's kind of a, she's kind of a member of our, of our artistic family or yeah. artistic family at this point. Um, and in that sense, well, so the series is kind of on hiatus right now because we're trying mm -hmm. to figure out a way to make it financially viable without a grant supporting it. Yeah. Um, but the effect that it's had on the organization is it's really broadened our, you know, our sense of artistic ambition, I think. You know, it's, it's emboldened us to do more stuff that at, a, at one time would have been considered outside of the box, would have been considered pushing the envelope. It's emboldened that spirit of, yeah, why not? Let's put that on the Math Force <laughs> series. And I think that's just been for the that's good awesome. of the entire organization. Yeah, I love the idea of um, that, that. Yeah, that these are not pops concerts. These are the the KSO on um, on stage were were classical concerts. Yeah, like, I, like you said, with the with the button unbutton, just a little more casual, more more welcoming. Yeah, and you know, and and, then, and but then I'm going to contradict myself also because we've got you know 
we've got a vocabulary problem in our business <laughs> where somehow yeah. the idea that something is not, you know, it's that something as a classical concert means that it's not popular or that something is on the pops program means that it's not a masterwork. Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to a Beatles tribute concert, that music is as timeless and essential as Handel's Messiah is, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, and this, you know, and this is something that I've had to develop in myself also is wean myself off of all of these, you know, labels and boxes that we put ourselves in and, you know, that we, that we wear, that we've worn with pride, you know, for most of our mm-hmm. musical lives, I'm a classical musician. I'm not a, you know, you know, whatever, what have you. And to nurture in myself a sense of curiosity and a sense of discovery of different ways of making music of different ways of making art. And, you know, what I've discovered is, first of all, there's, there's, there's so, so much to learn. And I always knew that, but I think I discovered also, you know, part of the hesitancy sometimes for seeking these things out comes out of a sense of vulnerability um, Mm -hmm. because you're, you're realizing, you know, you, you, you spent all your life trying to, you know, hone this one type of craft that you do and you walk into these other artistic worlds and these other musical worlds and you realize that there's, uh, you know, you, you know, for me, I, I can't improvise, you know, Mm -hmm. I, 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 I can't improvise. I don't play an instrument that allows me to access a lot of other musical styles besides classical music. And then that pushed me to think about, okay, you know, do, do I have something to bring to this conversation? Okay. You know, yeah. is it my place to be participating in this conversation? That led to trying to, you know, to, to, to build relationships. And those relationships led to new conversations and new projects like the creative train that I just described. They, the ideas weren't necessarily mine, um, but they were a product of kind of taking that step into mm-hmm. a new arena into uh into into an intimidating place you know for me <laughs> I, I you know i I, yeah. I talk about the audiences coming into an intimidating setting where you know like i'm the master of ceremonies but also for me <laughs> going into new settings and that's another thing that i've tried to do everywhere but particularly in my community is you know in in, in the knoxville community is to patronize other organizations, events, and particularly organizations that don't really have much interaction with the classical music uh, world. No, I think that's I think that's great, and that's really how you're gonna how you're gonna grow that that cultural community, you know, that artistic community in the city is by is by making those connections between things. So you're not all competing for the same audiences, but then you become collaborators in just about everything. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, we've we've just got a couple more questions. We're we're almost out of time. I've actually from the very beginning, I put a star on my notepad. Um, you talked about when you were in Kansas City, figuring out how to design a program that works on one rehearsal. Mm-hmm. What were what are some of the things that you found helps with that? Less is more. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
less, <laughs> le, 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 less, less is more. There, there might be uh, the overture to the bartered bride.